From the SID chip to the PC speaker, there's little more evocative than the music that accompanied the games we played over 30 years ago. No matter how primitive the instrument they played through, because like any instrument, we could all pick it up, we could all make our micros chirp a simple tune with a basic listing, but few could truly make them sing. Our guest today is celebrating those who could in spectacular fashion with orchestral renditions of them, which he wants to bring you via an 85-piece studio orchestra in Prague. His name is Chris Abbott, and here's a clip of some of the things he's been working on. See if you can guess the name of the game. Chris, you've recently been booked to be on BBC One's The One Show, a primetime TV slot. Is Retro about to hit the mainstream? Maybe. Um, there's um, a lot of lapsed gamers out there who I think would appreciate running into the music they remember from that many years ago in a much more kind of um, adult-friendly form, if you like. A form they can introduce to their wives, to their children, and uh, which... It uh, doesn't require you to to enjoy the raw waveforms that were in the original music. Much as we love them, the, uh, part of this project has been proving to my mum that this was real music. Oh, okay, okay. And have you convinced her now? She was at the, she was at the concert. She was at the concert, wonderful. And the concert was, of course, for the project, the name of which is the 8-Bit Symphony. Uh, the concert was the latest milestone, which we'll, we'll come on to talk about a little bit later. But it goes beyond that. Uh, there is a Kickstarter in progress, which we'll also talk about. But before we get on to all of that, let's talk a little bit about your background, Chris. Um, presumably, you had an 8-bit micro back in the day. Which was yours? Um, I started off with an Atari 400 and uh, then moved on to the Commodore 64. Um, did MIDI, MIDI stuff with um, Atari 800XL. Um, but the Commodore 64 was what I did the music and programming on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, what what tunes can you remember standing out on the C64 from back then? Um, Rob Hubbard tunes, Cantilla and Spellbound, Ocean Loader, Hypersports, um, Sanction, Knucklebusters, um, Last Ninja. That's too too many to mention. Too many, yeah, yeah. Um, well, the C64 really did stand out with its SID chip. And the project that you've been working on, um, its, its emphasis is on the Commodore 64. I, I don't think there can be much argument about its sonic merits compared to the competition at the time. Is it all C64 adapt adaptations or are there any other systems that get a look in with 8-Bit Symphony? Well, we tried to be as inclusive as possible. Rob Hubbard did program... Uh, and Ben Daglish did program their tunes for the Spectrum, the Amstrad, and other platforms. So um, some of the tunes did get onto other platforms, some didn't. Um, there's hardly anything that was explicitly on the Amstrad or the Spectrum that wasn't on the Commodore. Hydrofall was one from Rob Hubbard and that was only on the Spectrum. But everything else is pretty much... Um, it starts on the, the definitive versions on the Commodore and... Um, 
it may have made the journey to other computers. Um, that if, if we ever got a big, uh, a bigger concert, there was a plan to actually pay some love to the BBC Micro. Uh, by the, there was a demo called Cold Tea, which is a, a big deal to BBC Micro people. So I thought, let's get the pianist who wrote it over to the concert to actually play it in front of these BBC Micro owners. But uh, God knows whether that will ever happen. It's a nice idea, though. Maybe one day, maybe one day. So the 8-Bit Symphony project itself, how did that all start for you? Um, wanting the Stuff Orchestral started very early on. Um, in, in 1998, I heard Rob Hubbard's own orchestration of his Cantilla. Um, Forbidden Forest and Aztec Challenge were two American games by the composer Paul, Paul Norman, who, um, and they always demanded orchestration. So we got them done in 1999 by the Tomb Raider 456 musician Peter Connolly um, and then progressed on to other symphonic versions using the best technology we had at the time uh, for my third CD back in Tone 3. Um, Rob Hubbard's stuff was performed in 2007 at the, in Leipzig uh, and a version of his National Karate he did at the GDC. Um, and then there was a big gap because uh, I'd kind of left the scene for a bit because a friend of mine had uh, died of uh, brain tumour, brain cancer, nasty stuff. Um, and he was at the heart of all the live performances. And then in 2015, the whole thing started again because a, a French chap came to me and said, uh, I've got a French orchestra in Thionville in, in the, is it the, the east of France. Um, that want to play some video game music. Have you got any scores? And I said, well, no, <laughs> but <laughs> I'd love to have some. And uh, that kind of brought me back into the, the scene and via uh, uh, a very circuitous route of having to fund this to get to the next step. And so we had to fund the scores, but we had to raise the money for that by doing mock-ups. And then the mock-ups lead to the concert and then the concert leads to the Kickstarter. All the all the while doing other projects along the way to bring in key key people like Rob Hubbard. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can't turn down an opportunity like that when you have an orchestra knocking at your door. You know, you're you're going to come up with the music, aren't you? <laughs> well, that's right. Uh, that, that a lot of a lot of the people that came into the project when the, there was a chance of it being played by real orchestra and not just a uh, you know VSTs in a in a sequencer, because uh, you get a better. Uh, at that point, it becomes a real thing with people playing on stage and um that was an important step and uh that that was um we were helped in that by whole college who who came along and sponsored uh sponsored us being able to do that concerts are very very difficult to do financially because you have to pump money in at one end and you don't see it until the other um and that's a huge cash flow thing especially when you're taking you've got to sell so many tickets to justify an 80-piece orchestra yeah, and Hull being the, the, the birthplace of Rob Hubbard himself. Yeah. Um, so was his participation in the whole project important then in getting that funding? Was that the Rob Hubbard effect? It, it was, yeah. It, was, it, was, um, it, it justified Hull. And Rob is a, an amazing musician and a, a doctor now, actually, an honorary doctorate from the University of Abate, and um, very, very into orchestral uh, arranging and scoring and whatever. Um, so, I mean, we brought him on for other projects, but 
getting him to do this, being involved in the Baby Symphony was pretty much the um, uh, the feather in the cap, the thing that kept him around. That is because he's always wanted to work with with real orchestras. It's just his his passion. Um, the whole concert was slightly on the frustrating side in that um, when you're that pressed for time and you and you've got to rehearse so much stuff with an orchestra that's new, you don't get a lot of detailed control over how it's sounding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we'll come on to that shortly. Let's just hear another clip of the orchestra in action with a, a bit of Monty on the run, one of my favourites. Played by an orchestra reminds me of when I went to see an orchestra play the music of film composer John Williams. Uh, there's there's a cinematic quality to the tunes. I think uh, they feel like they could have easily been written by someone like Williams or James Horner. Was that quality and influence present in the original eight bit tunes, which has been emphasised by the orchestra, or do you think that's a result of the orchestra alone? Some of them were always meant to be orchestral flash gordon was meant to be orchestral cantilla was meant to be orchestral and they very definitely did have that mythic 80s john williams james horner feel to them but flash gordon is a john williams piece basically uh cantilla slightly more ambiguous um some of them um they became they they acquired a sound by virtue of the arrangement and orchestration process for instance, um, Ocean Loader isn't um, a naturally orchestral piece, so it needs a lot of um, a lot of modification to fit it into an envelope that where you haven't lost the soul of the piece, but equally an orchestra can play it without feeling bored or patronised, and so that um, you and so that you can make people not only think of Commodore 64s but of the film experiences they had in the 80s. It, it's a kind of double layer of nostalgia. Um, I mean, something like William Wobbler. Um, if you listen to that on the Commodore, it's, it sounds like a ragtime piece. But what it actually turned into was something that could have been in Home Alone. And that's as much a choice of the people interpreting the music as it was of the original composer. Who approved it? Uh, that's Ben before he, he left us. So he was, he was involved in the arrangement of his pieces before he died. And when you're working, when you worked with people like Ben and with people like Rob, how precious are they about keeping their tunes true to the original? Do they allow that amount of artistic license or are some a little more controlling than others? Um, it depends. You, you don't go around messing about with melodies too much if it's the core melody. And the, the melody in the court is kind of the, the, the root upon which it's all built. 
if you if you suddenly start messing about with that without a good musical reason, then you're then the audience will feel as if you're cheating them in some way. But Rob Hubbard uh, feels, who arranged most of his own pieces for this, feels a lot more entitled to take artistic license with his own pieces. So he can he feels he can change them a lot more than, for instance, I could because I, I arranged a lot of the stuff and then pass that on to an orchestrator to make it so that real people could play it. Um, but Rob himself did a lot of that work and felt entitled to put key changes in, to change bits of melody, to add entirely new sections. And because he did it, it's not just arbitrary and random. It's Rob Hubbard's vision for the piece in that setting. The original Monty on the Run, for instance, has a large, a long section with guitar, drums. Uh, it's, it's a rock solo. You can't do a rock solo with an orchestra. You have to take that bit entirely out <laughs> and bring something else in. And what he actually did with this is he made it sound a bit like Return of the Jedi. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's not like he sat down and said, "Oh, I think I'll be, I think I'll be John Williams here." But that's how it came out with his vision of a mole doing moley type things on the run in yeah. that context. Well, Rob himself originally he he wrote over seventy tunes for video games. You've narrowed down the eight bit symphony to uh, how, how many tracks is it in total? Is it is it nineteen or? Well, the concert was seven uh, sixteen. It right. was originally seventeen tracks because one of them had to be removed for time reasons, right? And uh, rehearsal time reasons as well. Um, the actual track pool that was commissioned was around about thirty eight to thirty nine pieces across the Commodore 64. And that was in the first Kickstarter, which was a three album stroke, six album set of mock-ups. So essentially that created the 8-Bit Symphony Volume 1 and 8-Bit Symphony Volume 2 at the same time, which is why it's taken four years. Right, yeah. Um, We're still working on that. So presumably the, the, the final track listing for the concert itself then you, it had to be chosen on the merits of being able to ebb and flow throughout the concert rather than just on the individual tracks themselves. But it must have still been a difficult task to narrow it down. Was that was that down it, to you to choose those tracks? It wasn't that difficult in the sense that some of the tracks were ready and some of them weren't. Okay. The ones that were ready got into the concert. And then <laughs> luckily they were of, of sufficient variety to be able to construct a kind of concert narrative in a flow. Um, which um, which we did. I mean, you've got the the Ben Daglish tribute in the second half, which is quite emotional. Then you've got you have to end with Monty on the Run. You have to begin with a loading tune. Of course, yeah, yeah. Um, and everything else is kind of like slotted in as, like a jigsaw. Uh, and the 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 conductor and Rob both had um, input into that. It wasn't just me picking stuff. In fact, my my, my version um, had. Ben stuff too near the end of the concert, and Rob said, "Oh, you know, um, it, the concert would flow better if he did this." So we did that. Yeah. And how do you even how do you even begin to take a Sid tune and start to deconstruct it to to rearrange for an orchestral score? Did you have some assistance with that? Um, some of them, the they they all started virtually all of them started off either in my head or Rob's head. I mean, Rob will always have like a, a picture in his head of how he wants something to sound, so it's easy for him to. Uh, he's conversant enough with the orchestra and uh, 
the possibilities and musical theory and everything else to uh, to have a good idea. Same with with Ben when he was uh, around. Um, for me, it was basically um, thinking in my head of things it might sound like to convey the same sort of experience. So one of the tunes started off as Leia's theme and was then altered so that it wasn't anymore, but it still conveyed the same structure. Then Rob took that and turned it into a 19th century romantic piece and removed all the John Williams, <laughs> which is pro- probably a good idea. Um, but it was a, it was a, it, it worked really well. Um, later on, you might think, oh, it's just for Spellbound makes me think of desert marketplaces. So here's a desert marketplace and here's what's happening during that time. You know, here's the people, here's the hagglers, oh, oh, there's a dragon kind of thing. And then you let that that inform what you're doing. If, if, it's going to be, if there are going to be changes across time, you've at least got to have an internal reason why you're doing that rather than just I'm doing it because it's about time we had a key change. I mean, if you're telling a story, even if the person listening doesn't know what it is, they might get a sense that there was some something there. And of course, Rob was a classically trained, I believe, pianist before he did his C64 work. So he, he can obviously converse fluently with the orchestra and, and get his message across clearly. Yes, yes, he can. the track listing was chosen the orchestra was practiced and finally they performed live in concert in Hull City Hall in June of this year that must have been a special moment for you it really was Um, it was nerve-wracking and uh, the BBC were there to make it even more so Um, ideally Ben would have presented it because he would have eaten up that uh, eaten up that chance and really wowed the audience as it is me and my friend Graham who was also instrumental, if you pardon the pun, in setting the concert up, um, presented it as almost a kind of univer- pair of university lecturers. Uh, the, the whole thing had a the whole thing had a kind of historical. Here's here's the games that were in that theme. Like, okay, here are load of screens. Here are here are RPG games. Here are fighting games. Uh, presenting the the sort of montage of things and occasionally adding something to make it so it wasn't just a montage for instance one of the tune one of the videos had the main character from the game that appeared at the beginning finding his way home through all the other clips so he kept appearing in all the other games ah, okay okay so you had a video display going with the music as well it was very important because it did a lot of heavy lifting for say the children and and uh, in the end uh, looking at an orchestra is interesting for about 5 minutes and then it's basically the novelty wears off and you're kind of looking at your bootstraps. In this case, we had a golden chance to present the music in context, to give some history, 
and to convey some humor and to keep people interested. And to, uh, a lot of people won't have seen all the games that were that were, were in the thing. That like um, one of them even got uh, a game called Hair Razor, which is by common consent one of the worst games ever written. But in the context of the of how we presented it, it was ideal because it was basically a screen saying everything is great. You're in a field and just a tree, and but the music gave that meaning. And then the character wandered on looking for whatever looking for his house and so uh, yeah well many wouldn't have played it but many in the audience would have because it would have been quite a specialized audience i imagine a lot of hardcore commodore fans did they leave satisfied have you had some feedback from the audience themselves oh yeah they did they they had a great time um the music was big i mean you've got 80 musicians on stage um, no matter what mistakes they make in, in a live performance, you, you can't take away the size and impact. And uh, it was the first time the music had been heard, but then they were familiar with the tunes. Although there were a lot of people there who weren't. There was like um, mothers and fathers and grannies of the people of people in the orchestra. And there were kids who'd never, this was their first orchestral concert. And they were happy too. I, I was watching watching some of them from the from you know the stage where I was during the, the things and they were talking to them during the interval and they loved the, the pieces on their own merits without having to have a shroud of nostalgia over them. Yeah. Oh that's really nice to hear. I mean, traditionally video games um you know the mainstream media has looked down their nose at video games. Um it's obviously got a lot better in more recent years as as the size of the industry has grown. Um, but the, the orchestra players themselves, um, were they happy with the composition? I mean, did it, did it stand up to their scrutiny as classical pieces in their own rights with no previous knowledge or nostalgia for the games? Did you have good feedback from them? Uh, big time. Yeah. I mean, they liked it partly because it's, um, it's, it's melodic. It's got an easy structure. It's almost written like pop melodies. Um, it, it's very, um, it's, very memorable, very stylistic. It's not afraid to be cliche. Um, it's not trying to be too clever. It's trying to be big and powerful and epic and emotional and spine tingling. But it's not trying to necessarily be too clever. So it's it's very accessible. It reminds people of stuff they've already heard. Um, and the overall quality was such that uh, the the players really enjoyed playing it. Well, let, well, let's hear another tune now. We're going to hear a little bit of Aztec Challenge. Before we do that, who had to work the hardest in the orchestra, <laughs> playing-wise? Um, well, we kept the... Let's see. Um, we kept the timpani busy. Um, I think the cello players probably get the brunt of the, uh, the work because they hardly ever stop. There we go, the cello players. Uh, this one's for the cello players then, Aztec Challenge. <laughs> Especially in that one. <laughs>
Chris, that was the music from Aztec Challenge. Having achieved that wonderful and what sounds like a very successful concert, what's next for the 8-Bit Symphony? Well, we couldn't record the concert. And if you've got these scores printed out and ready for real players and you haven't got a recording of said scores played by real players, then you need to record them. Um, And we thought, well... Prague is the best place to do that because you can get a really good quality of orchestra for about half the price of the UK. Plus, it's a nice place, so you can just wander out of the studio and see Wenceslas Square, for instance. Um, and that's what we're doing. We're restoring some of the pieces that had to be cut for time reasons. Uh, like uh, So there's, there's um, about 19 pieces and two of the existing ones extended. Green Beret, for instance, had an entire second part which we had to lop off for the concert, which makes it sense because the the piece is telling the story of a battle, and the battle ends halfway through in the concert version. And Last Ninja, we had to extend. You know, that, that was that was about twelve minutes long, and it had to be cut down to about five minutes or less because sheer time pressure. Okay, so you you found the orchestra. Uh, in Prague and then the Kickstarter itself then the purpose of that is to fund the the cost of the orchestra um what else what other overheads are involved in in bringing this to our hands well hardly anyone's getting paid for their time so um it's I mean the the whole thing is being done under the auspices of the new charity that we've set up 8-bit symphony so they've sort of ring fenced into this project uh I mean hopefully that charity can go on to do other concerts and whatever um there's the hotel and travel fees for uh, you know getting everyone there there's pressing the cds and the blu-rays and and uh, postage tax yeah so a lot of a lot of logistics then i mean the the hard and creative part is is already done as you've proven in the um in the concert that you had so yeah it's just getting the funds together to to get everyone in the right place and and to make the recording that you want um so the kickstarter is live now is that is that correct it's live now okay um, and it ends on september the 8th okay not it's long a, to go <laughs> it's a tough it's a tough call and um hopefully people will see it in the the once in a lifetime context that it is because you know we um, okay if it fails we might try and do it again once more but then that's it that's the chance of the world to have this music played by a big orchestra unless Elon Musk suddenly discovers a, a love for Commodore 64 music and an open checkbook. Elon uh, Musk's sudden realisation of his love for Monty on the run. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know I know. he's a big fan. <laughs> well, it's, this... it's why he wants to get to the moon. <laughs> well, uh, if you're watching this and it interests you, then then please do support the project on Kickstarter because, as Chris has said, these, th- these things don't fund themselves. So if you want it to happen then make it happen by uh, heading over to the Kickstarter page. There's a link in the video description and in the comments. Go and uh, pledge to fund it and get yourselves a copy of, will it be CD format, digital format? How would we get hold of this if we bought um, it? Double CD, digital, and there's also a Blu-ray with surround sound mixes. Oh, nice. Very nice. So, yeah, you know what you need to do if you want to make that happen. And I think we've heard the quality of the work is superb in the clips that we've heard today it really is a fine piece so um congratulations on what you've achieved so far chris thank you very much good luck with the kickstarter i hope you hit that target 
And, Thank you. Uh, yeah, I hope we get to hear the result. Thank you for your time. Today, oh, Chris. definitely. <laughs> You'll be the first person to play a track off it. Oh, wonderful. Thank you, Chris. Oh, Take oh, care. You can hold me to that. Take care. <laughs> You've been listening to the Retro Tea Break podcast. If you enjoy this kind of thing, then check out my YouTube channel, Retro Man Cave. Or for more podcasts, search Retro Island Diskettes. Or see the show notes for links. Retro Tea Break.